wonderful to be here in the house of the Lord this morning. My grandson, Will, calls this his school cafeteria. He's a student at this fine institution. But this morning, we declare it to be the house of God. And uh, it's wonderful to be able to meet with you here. I asked this morning, I have good news for you, by the way. I'm not preaching at you this morning. This isn't about you. This is just the story of God, and we're going to talk about it a little bit. But, you know, sometimes Greg gets up here and he just hammers at us. He says, if I step on your toes, move your feet, one of his favorite lines, you know, I'm not going to do that this morning. It's just, this is about God. It's not, not preaching about you. So you can relax, just enjoy it, and listen. By the way, we, we just finished a time of worship, but we're extending our time of worship this morning because we study the Word of God as an act of worship, don't we? This is worshiping God. It's not that we worshiped and now we're going to learn. Studying the Word of God together is an act of worship, understanding the importance of God's Word and how it applies to our lives. And He works in us to change us and to develop us and better us and draw us closer to Him because of this part of our worship service this morning. We're going to look this morning at Acts chapter 12. But I asked uh, for that particular psalm to be read this morning for our scripture reading because it shows so clearly the contrast between the wicked and the righteous. And we're going to be talking this morning in Acts chapter 12 a little bit about that contrast between the wicked and the righteous. I love the way in Psalm 36 it shows this digression of the wicked man. If you take a few minutes uh, maybe later today or this week to look at that psalm and kind of look at each, each of those first uh, verses that talk about the wicked and it's like bad, it goes from bad to worse to worse yet and, uh, and then in contrast it talks about God's love for the righteous and that we get to drink from his river of delights. We see some of that happening in Acts chapter 12. But before we dive into it this morning, I want to remind you of what, where we've been in the last couple of chapters. The last couple of chapters, we learned about Peter's vision when uh, he had the vision of God dropping the sheet full of animals and God told him to, to rise and kill and eat. And, uh, and the significance of that vision being that the, the gospel of Jesus Christ was now being declared to not be only for the Jews, but for everyone. And then when Peter started acting on this, he got in a little, bit of a, hot, a little bit of hot water with the other apostles, and then he explained what had happened, the vision that God had given to him, and they agreed together with great rejoicing that the gospel was now for everyone. So that's the backdrop to what we look at today in Acts chapter 12. And then we'll, we'll look a little bit at what's coming up ahead too. And the significance of this story, this account, placed between Peter's vision and the new understanding that the gospel of Jesus Christ, salvation was not just for the Hebrews, but was for everybody, and then the mission activities that come after. So let's take a look at Acts chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So you get what's going on here. Right after these things that Greg has been teaching us about over the last couple of weeks, 
we see this, uh, this turn of things going uh, in a bad direction with James being arrested. By the way, when you think of the, the 12 disciples, there, there are a few of them that kind of uh, are repeated or make appearances often in the four Gospels. And James and his brother John were two of those. James and John were referred to as the sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee. James and John are referred to a lot in the Gospels, and Peter is also. So we have three of those disciples who, who were kind of uh, key, key disciples in the sense that we hear a lot about them when we read through the Gospels that make an appearance in the story. But, but James, after all of the things that he experienced and did in the years that he walked with Jesus, gets part of a sentence about his arrest and execution. And I was looking at this this week and thinking, man, that doesn't seem right. It, I mean, there should be chapters about the story of, of this great disciple and how he was arrested and, and put on trial for his faith and then beheaded. I assume beheaded. So he was killed with a sword, so probably beheaded. But it, it doesn't happen that way. And there's this little tiny bit of a sentence, and we're going to come back to, to observing that later and see the significance of, of why there might be just such a small mention of this great disciple. James was killed with a sword. Herod saw that it pleased the Jews, and so he arrested Peter also, put Peter in prison, but because it was the middle of the Passover, he was kind of saving Peter till the Passover was over. And it doesn't say explicitly that he was going to kill Peter, but I think it's a safe assumption. It says he was going to bring him out to the people after the Passover. And uh, he had just, I don't think he was bringing him out to do a, you know, a dance or to sing a song or recite poetry. He was bringing him out to the people because the people were so excited that James had been killed with a sword. So it's a safe assumption to say that he was going to bring, bring Peter out after the Passover and kill him with the sword in front of the people to please the people. So that's what's happening. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. So get this scene. Here's this guy who's about to be killed in front of all of the people, his last night in the prison, and he's sound asleep. And there are several miracles going on right there, because uh, I don't think I could sleep if I was going to be killed the next day. But forget that. Even if I knew the next day was just going to be a normal day, I don't think I could sleep with my arms chained to two uh, guards on each side. I just wouldn't be able to probably find the comfortable position that would help me to sleep well. Last week, uh, Jessica and I, in fact, I think maybe a week ago today, we were coming back from uh, Arizona and had to have an all-night flight. I just hate having to sleep on airplane. I mean, I can't sleep. I can't get comfortable on an airplane. And so I missed a night's sleep coming back from Phoenix, and, uh, and it was a, a kind of an interesting week making up for that. I don't sleep good in difficult positions. But here Peter was sound asleep, peaceful, comfortable, with each arm changed to guard on, e on each side. And in the middle of his slumber that night, behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. The angel struck Peter on his side and woke him up. I, I think... You'd think that an angel would find a better way to wake somebody up from their comfortable sleep. I mean, after all the effort it takes to get to sleep when you're chained between two guards, you know, when you have to wake somebody up, I don't know if you've ever done this, but if you ever have to wake up your wife and she's sleeping, you want to do it carefully, right? Because bad things can happen otherwise. Sometimes people come out of their sleep, a deep slumber, not in the best of moods when they get awakened. 
I've never uh, tried this particular method of slapping her on the side to wake her up. And nor will I, even though there is a scriptural precedent for it here. <laughs> the angel of the Lord stood next to him. The light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. The angel said to him, said to him Dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And the angel said, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. This is interesting. He went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. He thought he was dreaming. And what a cool dream. The night before you're about to be executed, to dream that an angel came to your prison cell, woke you up, and told you to get dressed, and the chains fell off, and he walked you right out of the prison. And it wasn't until he got out on the street, they passed the first and the second guard, came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, as it might do in a dream. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. And then Peter came to himself, and he said, I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. What an amazing story, isn't it? I can't help but think of the contrast between the two stories that we see happening so far in the 12th chapter of the book of Acts. The first story is less than a sentence. James was killed with a sword, and the Jewish people were delighted by that. And then there's the story of Peter, who was miraculously freed from prison, the night before he was to be killed with the sword. I couldn't help this week but wonder, why? Like, why is James killed and barely a mention about it, and then why is Peter freed so miraculously? I don't know exactly, but I've got some ideas that I'd like to present to you today. But let's go back to the story. Now Peter's out on the street, realizing that this is not a vision or a dream, this is real. And when he, back to verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. When he knocked on the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. So, that's fun. Peter has this incredible thing happen, and he's standing there outside the gate of the house where the church had gathered and were praying for him. And she comes and sees him there and leaves him standing on the street and runs back to tell everybody. And when he goes back to tell everybody, <clears throat> they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so and kept saying, it's his angel. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued, so they assumed that Peter had been killed and this was some uh, odd apparition representing him. But Peter continued knocking. When they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison and said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. What a story. The people that were gathered together to pray were so unbelieving that their prayer had been answered that they said to Rhoda that she was out of her mind 
for saying that Peter was standing there outside the gate. They were so astonished. How, how often are we that way when we pray and then don't really expect God to answer? Then we see God answer in some powerful way. We sort of don't, there must be some other explanation. I mean, I think we're all guilty of that far too often. So let's not throw stones at these people who are gathered in that room praying for Peter when he was so miraculously delivered. He came back into them, and I love the way he just calmed them down. Look, let's, we got business to tend to, because uh, this story is about the business that they were doing. It's not about the characters that are in the story. So picking back up with verse 18, now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers. That means there was a big disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter after Herod searched for him and did not find him. But by the way, picture that. Herod searching for him, trying to figure out what exactly happened. Herod put 16 soldiers guarding this guy because he had some idea that, you know, he's dealing with supernatural things and something could happen. 16 people guarding this guy and still in the morning the prisoner is gone and the guards honestly have no idea what happened. It seems like none of them saw an angel or knew that Peter had escaped. It's not like they were somehow frozen and saw it and heard it but couldn't act. They seem to have no idea what had just happened. And I feel bad for those guys the next morning when they had to explain it to Herod and have no explanation at all. And Herod didn't take that well. And Herod had all of them executed, ordered that they should be put to death. And then Herod went from Judah, Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. We'll, we'll leave this story for now and maybe, you know, no, no, let's go ahead and finish it. Because there's just one more little thing that happens in this chapter. Then we'll go back and talk a little bit about some of what's, what's going on here. So Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon was sort of some, some neighboring provinces. Herod was angry with these people. They came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain. They asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. Okay, so here's the deal. Herod was mad at these guys, wasn't giving them the food that they needed. They depended on Herod's kingdom to provide the food that they needed. And, uh, and so they had an insider in Herod's court who was able to get them in for an audience. And they sent their representatives to go and meet with Herod to try and persuade him to restore relationship with them so that they could have the food that their provinces needed. And so they go and they're talking to Herod on the appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took a seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people, and these were the people from Tyre and Sidon, who were there to try and restore this relationship so they could get food. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing them John, whose other name was Mark. There's the end of chapter 12. We've been through the whole chapter now, and you think you're getting out early today, don't you? <laughs> oh, no. By the way, uh, there's so many little things that entertain me when I read the Scripture, including this little tidbit that he, God struck him down. He was eaten by worms and breathed his last. I assume in that order. I'm not sure exactly what happened there, but uh, it must have been a sight to see. 
I think it's interesting that God didn't strike Herod down because he had killed James and arrested Peter. God struck Herod down because he was willing to accept and assume the glory that should be God's. That's what really did it for Herod. And I think that's not the main topic of our message today, but I think there's something in there to be recognized as well. As I was studying this this week, I, I went and made a list of all of the different characters that make an appearance in this account in the 12th chapter of Acts. Let me just go through that list for you. In order of appearance, Herod, the wicked king. This is Herod Agrippa, by the way. Herod Agrippa was the grandson of uh, Herod the Great, the nephew of Herod who had put John the Baptist to death. So there are multiple Herods who are kings of Israel. This guy, even though he was king of Israel, he was appointed by the Roman emperor Caligula. So he was not a friend of Israel, was not a good guy, obviously. He was not on the side, on the team of the Hebrew people. He was a representative of Rome, basically, that they put there because that worked for them. So that's Herod. Next we see James, the brother of John. We mentioned James and John, the sons of thunder, sons of Zebedee. It mentions the Jews who were pleased with James' beheading. It mentions Peter who was arrested by Herod also because he felt that would please the Jews. We have squads of soldiers who are guarding Peter, 16 soldiers directly assigned, and then I'm sure other soldiers who are guarding the gates and other parts of the prison. We have the church who are praying earnestly for Peter that are mentioned in verse 5. We have the angel of the Lord who woke Peter up, who makes an appearance in the story. We have, uh, not directly, Mary, the mother of John Mark, but the prayer meeting is happening in her house. I assume she was there. We have Rhoda, the servant. I thought that was interesting. Like this servant who goes and gets the gate is named in Scripture, Rhoda. I don't, never before, never after, just Rhoda, the servant, went to the gate, played a key part in the story. We have the people of Tyre and Sidon. We have the angel of the Lord who struck down Herod at the end of the story. And then we have, at the very end, Barnabas and Saul, and John Mark, who returned from Judea after all of these events took place. All these people that have a part in this story, in this story that covers so much dramatic territory, and yet the story of the, the purpose of, of Acts chapter 12 is not about any of these people. And I thought that was interesting. It's not the story of James in his death. It's not the story of Peter and his release from prison, although that's kind of the centerpiece of this chapter, isn't it? But the story is not about him. It's not about Herod, as dramatic as that is. This king who is planted there by Caligula, the Roman emperor, and leading the Jews and, and arresting the leaders of the church, having them killed and imprisoned. It's not about the people who were praying. This story, my friends, is about the church. This is about God building his church. Back in the previous chapters, we heard the story of the sheep being let down from heaven and the opening of the gospel to all people. If it wasn't for that, I, I would not be here today worshiping the one true God. I would be an outsider who has a wall dividing between me and God. That wall was taken down because of the events that we're reading about here. After this, what we see happening in the following chapters are the very first missionary journeys. So before we have the gospel technically philosophically being opened up to all people. 
then we have this, and then immediately after we have these guys going out on missionary journeys, actively taking the gospel to all people, doing the work of the Great Commission. And this is right in between. And I want to analyze it a little bit this morning because I think it will be good for us to do this. Why this story is here. What does this story do in terms of helping us understand God building his church? If James had not been beheaded, then maybe when Saul and Barnabas and others went out on their missionary journeys and they started to face opposition and danger, they would have felt like something's going wrong. Maybe we're on the wrong track. But James was beheaded, and that taught them that there's possibly a terrible price to be paid for going out and preaching the gospel. This was a key lesson that was learned by the church in Acts chapter 12 that is remembered today by missionaries who are going out all over the world preaching the gospel, knowing that their very lives may be in danger, and that's okay. If Peter wasn't released from prison in such a miraculous way, then as people go out and share the gospel, they might not have the hope that comes from understanding that we serve an all-powerful God who, as He desires, as He wills, can do miraculous things to advance His kingdom to protect His people. Sometimes it doesn't go that way. James was beheaded. There's a lesson there. But sometimes it does, and God displayed His miraculous power by the release of Peter from prison. If the people of the church were not earnestly praying for Peter, even though there's that little humorous part about Rhoda and them not understanding that it actually happened, but if they weren't praying for Peter and seeing this miraculous answer to their prayer, then maybe today the people of God wouldn't be committed to prayer for the missionaries who are going out around the world preaching the gospel and doing the work of the Great Commission. If Herod wouldn't have been this wicked leader who was in authority over all that was happening with the development of the early church, then maybe we today wouldn't have the understanding that God places leaders in place and uses them according to his means, overrules them, overrides them, installs them, takes them out according to his pleasure, and it's not going to be a major interference in the work of the gospel. You see, these are important lessons that we maybe would not even know if it wasn't for the stories in the Acts chapter 12. So this chapter is not about these people. It's not about these stories about God building his church. And that's the point of this this morning. We should take tremendous joy in the fact that Almighty God did this thing, made this change, took us through this transition, because when Jesus Christ was walking on earth, he was the one who was going around healing the, healing the sick, raising the dead, preaching the Word of God, teaching people, standing in the front of a boat by the water with thousands of people there, doing miracles, teaching them about the kingdom of God. But when He ascended into heaven, He passed that responsibility to teach the gospel onto His disciples and through them to us when he stood on the Mount of Olives, and before ascending into heaven, he spoke these words, 
Go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to obey the things I've commanded you and gave this promise too. And as you do, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And that transition took place from Jesus Christ being the teacher of the Word of God, the one going out and making disciples, to you and me, the followers of Christ, the church, carrying that responsibility of going out and teaching the Word of God and making disciples. And that's why this is important. Because as that responsibility was given, here is the proof that He's with us always, even to the end of the age, through assassination, through imprisonment, through times of prayer, through times of suffering under difficult leadership. So often today, and I'm, I'm not picking on the church in America, it's just that this is us, this is where we live. And so often today, in the culture of the Church of America, we're so concerned that we might have to go through some difficulty because of our faith. We're privileged to have lived in a nation for over 200 years now where the freedom to worship is guaranteed to us in our Constitution. And that's a uniqueness of our country. And we might look at that as a blessing and a privilege, and maybe it is. But as I've studied this this week and thought about this, I, I, I had to challenge my own thinking on that and ask the question, is the freedom of religion the primary goal of the church? And the answer is obviously no. <laughs> That's not taught anywhere in Scripture, that we should be seeking freedom to worship, that we should be seeking protection from danger that comes from a hostile government or hostile society that's hostile against our faith. There's nothing in Scripture that teaches us that this is what we should be all about. And yet, man, so often it's just the content of our prayers. As we pray for believers in other, part of the wor other parts of the world, I mean, I, I've done this, and I'm, I don't know that this is particularly wrong, so don't misunderstand me, to pray for the, the church in China and to pray that they would have the freedom to worship. I think that's honorable and good, but is that really what the Bible teaches us to pray for? No, it's not. We should be praying for our fellow believers in countries like China that they would be able to preach the gospel clearly, that they would be able to worship God in spirit and in truth, and that God would use them to spread His Word and to declare His glory to the people around them. I think it was uh, almost a year ago when we had that missions weekend, and we had missionaries stand up here on this stage and explain to us that maybe the fastest growing church in the world is in Iran, a place where there's absolutely no freedom to worship, and there's tremendous opposition. And yet God in that environment is prospering the church and building his church. And we're so afraid that we might have some opposition that that becomes one of our main blessings that we claim and main things that we pray about. I think it was about 20 years ago, I was at a conference and, uh, and heard 
Alistair Begg. You may know Alistair Begg, a great, great preacher and writer. Radio program, I think it's called Truth for Life. He's pastor of a church in, uh, in the Cleveland area. He is from Scotland. And I remember th- this thing, in fact, I was with Alistair a couple of weeks ago having dinner, and, uh, and I was telling them, hey, I remember this message from 20 years ago. And I was just sitting in there in the audience hearing you speak. And in that message, I remember him saying that in Europe, the church has gone dormant. Europe, at that point, he was saying in his message, has become a post-Christian society. And he then proceeded to tell us that that was happening in America, that we were going to see that happen in the coming years. And I remember thinking, I mean, maybe, but I, I don't see that. Like, I don't see that happening, and yet look at us. It's happened. Like, it's not going to happen. It's not in the middle of happening. The United States of America is, in so many ways, a post-Christian society. The fastest-growing religion in the United States of America is called nuns. Not N-U-N-S, the ones with the funny hats. N-O-N-E-S, nuns. People who have no religion. What is your religion? None. I don't have any. I don't have beliefs. That's the fastest growing religion in our country. And so in our times of peace and prosperity where we don't have the opposition that comes from a hostile government and we have the guarantee in our constitution of freedom to worship, what has happened to the church? The fastest growing religion in America is no religion at all. And yet in Iran or this tremendous opposition and fear of execution for your faith. It's got the fastest growing church of anywhere in the world. Got a couple of points to kind of make in closing here. If we could bring up, uh, here's, here's something I was thinking about this week. In terms of this story and the characters of the story, death, freedom from prison, the most momentous occasions in our lives, whether tragic or triumphant, may not have the eternal significance in God's master plan that we might imagine. You know, the killing of James at the hand of Herod was not a significant part of the story. God used James in all kinds of ways. Same with Peter. Peter was released from prison on this occasion, later was killed in a tragic way, a violent way, hung upside down on a cross. The most important things that happen in our lives, the the terrible things that we go through that cause us agony and pain, the celebrations that we have, the wonderful things that happen in our lives, they matter to us, and God uses those to refine us and sometimes to work through us in the lives of other people. But God is going to carry out his plan, and that's one of the key stories of this chapter. God is building his church, and God is going to carry out his plan. And we need to remember that the things that happen in our lives, and please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that God doesn't care, and I'm not saying that they don't matter. I'm saying that God is carrying out his plan, and whether I do this or I do that or whatever happens to me is not going to change God's plan or his ability to execute it to his glory in the lives of people. What's next? A dozen different characters or groups in the story, but the story's not about any of them. Acts 12 is a story of God building his church. And freedom of religion is not the primary goal of the church. 
when we pray mostly for liberty to worship and protection from harm, we're ignoring some very significant truths. Truths like this. The Bible teaches us that our lives are like a vapor. Like grass that grows for a day and withers. That's what our lives are like in, in terms of all of eternity. We put all this great significance on our lives, but they're going to end. Every one of us, it's appointed unto man wants to die, and then the judgment. And we live our lives too often forgetting that we have this little tiny role for a very brief time, and our purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy Him as He works in us and through us. When we pray primarily for protection and liberty of worship, we're ignoring the fact that the church was born in opposition and violence. I mean, look what happened in the birth of the church. Can you imagine what it must have felt like to these people who were part of this story in Acts chapter 12, the people who were praying so earnestly, gathered together in John Mark's mother's house? They had to experience the shock of James just having been killed, and now Peter's in prison. He's going to be killed the next day, and they're praying that God would do something. They didn't believe it when God did. They had to feel like the wheels are coming off. You know, this, is, this church thing that we're doing, this new movement of God, something's going wrong. Something bad is happening because there's so much opposition and so much violence. We so easily adopt the thinking that when there's opposition, that means that God is closing a door, putting up a roadblock, and sometimes that may be true. But sometimes there's a roadblock because God wants us to face a road, roadblock. And there's opposition because we're promised that there will be opposition to the work of the gospel. We're promised by Jesus that people will hate us for his name's sake. And yet we get so surprised when it happens and so appalled at the thought that that could happen in America. The truth is that the church prospers in opposition and violence. And I'm not sure that we should pray that it wouldn't happen. I've never uh, given birth. Uh, don't let that get around because in this day and age, that's uh, very unpopular to declare <laughs> such a thing. Uh, I'm, I'm not a mother. And uh, I've been around the process a few times. One thing I've never seen, and by the way, I, I understand from a father's perspective that some of the, the fear and worry that precedes childbirth when you're going to have a, a child and you're, you're, you know all the things that could go wrong and all the different things that could, could happen and you're so concerned. that I remember uh, James Dobson years ago. This is when I was a, a young guy before my first child was born. I w my, my career at that point was hanging wallpaper and painting. And I had a, this business and a crew that did this work. And I remember I was uh, in, in a, a house, a new, new house was being built, uh, hanging wallpaper in this bathroom, and uh, no one was around. Had the radio on, listening to James Dobson, Focus on the Family. Remember that show? Man, that was great stuff for a, a young dad. And I remember him talking about that fear of all the things that could go wrong before a child is born. He's saying... Uh, the first thing when a child is born, you're counting fingers and toes and making sure everything's, you know, like it's supposed to be. And then as soon as you see that that's true, from that moment forward, to have a normal child is just not good enough. 
You know, we want our child to excel, to be the best, to be in the, the gifted program, to be the best athlete. There's all this pressure to excel. But I, I remember that concern that there might, might, something might go wrong during childbirth. And I can't imagine what it's like for a woman. And yet, in spite of that, I've never heard of a woman who's, as she's approaching childbirth, trying to figure out a way to give birth to a child without pain. Have you? I mean, you might wish it could be true, but you know it just doesn't happen. You know that's part of the process. Instead, the normal thing for a woman who's approaching that day of giving birth to the child is the eagerness to hold the child and to have a relationship with this baby that's going to be born. And there's that expectation, anticipation of joy that comes from the birth of the child, knowing that it's going to be a painful process. But you never hear of somebody trying to devise a way. I mean, people have tried. I think there was a period in our history, in our medical history, where uh, they did things to, uh, to knock women out so they wouldn't feel the pain of childbirth or do, uh, do different things to eliminate the pain of childbirth. And that's, that's probably great. But pain is part of childbirth. We don't particularly try and avoid it. We accept it. Yet when it comes to the birth of the church, to the growth of the church, we're so intent on finding ways to have the church grow and prosper, have the work of the Great Commission and evangelism go forward without having to suffer any pain. And it just doesn't happen. The growth of the church can be a messy process. It was born, the church was born in opposition and violence, and it will continue to grow. And without that opposition, sometimes we end up like we are, a post-Christian society that doesn't have that stress or worry of opposition. One of the great writers, C.S. Lewis, who wrote uh, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, the, the Narnia series, a great piece, Mere Christianity. One of his early pieces that he wrote was actually written as a, uh, a series of newspaper articles in London during World War II, when the bombs were raining down on London in that period of the Blitzkrieg, and people were living their lives like people in Ukraine today under the constant threat of death. And he wrote this series that ended up being a little book called The Screwtape Letters. I'm sure many of you have read The Screwtape Letters. It's a great, great book. And if you haven't read it, I'd encourage you to. And if you have read it, I encourage you to go back and read it again because packed with all kinds of interesting things. Here's the premise of the story. The Screwtape Letters is, uh, is a fable that features a senior demon in hell who writes letters back and forth with a junior demon who's on earth and assigned a particular person, a subject. They call him the patient. And so the senior demon in hell is writing letters to the junior demon, giving him advice and counsel, kind of coaching him on how to torment, cause uh, the spiritual decay and destruction of this guy. And the junior demon will write letters back, telling him, giving reports on how it's going and what's happening. And these are the screw tape letters. Obviously, it's not theologically sound as far as the construct. And that wasn't Lewis's intention. It was just a framework, a story, a fable, something that he made up to carry some information about some of Satan's plans as he deals with us. And it's very, very enlightening. And at one point in the story, because remember this was written during the Blitzkrieg in London, at one point in the story, the junior demon on earth is writing back to Screwtape 
so filled with excitement because of the war that's broken out in Europe. And the people are being destroyed, being killed. They're living in fear. And the senior demon writes back to him and says how foolish he is for thinking this way because it's during times of war that the humans tend to recognize their own mortality and their thoughts turn away from themselves and turn towards God. And actually, this is a terrible thing because their ultimate goal is the spiritual destruction of the patient, the humans, so that in this story, he would end up being in hell where they could dine on his soul as a tasty morsel. And so now this war is broken out and people's attention is being turned to their mortality and through that to God. Freedom of religion is not the primary goal of the church. Acts chapter 12 is not about Herod, James, or Paul. The story today is not about you or about me. We're participants in the story of God's redemption of his image bearers, and God is glorified when we understand our role. This is the point of today. This is kind of the key thing I'm trying to get across this morning We are participants in God's story. This stuff isn't all about us. The events of our lives are not the main thing. The tragedies, the triumphs, they're not the main thing. Our focus needs to be on the development of the church, the work of the Great Commission. And as much as we are able to do that, God is glorified in us. Acts chapter 11 carries the realization that the gospel is for everybody. Acts chapter 13, Barnabas and Saul set off on the first missionary journey. Most Bibles, I remember when I was a kid, I used to, you know, when my dad, who was uh, my pastor, was up there preaching and I started to get bored, I'd like to go to the back of the Bible where there'd be all these maps of the missionary journeys and I'd just study the maps and, and the, the landscape of the Middle East those missionary journeys are such a huge part of Scripture. And it all starts right here. It all starts right after this. These events that we're talking about this morning set the stage, understanding that there's a price to be paid, understanding that there is a God who protects, a God who delivers, understanding that there is opposition, there are wicked rulers, but through all of that, God is going to carry out the building of His church. Chapter 13 Paul and Barnabas set out, and that much time goes by, and then Ken and Ann Pennell, my parents, come home from Pontiac Missionary Church one night to their family when I was six years old, sit us down and tell us that they're resigning from the church and we're going to be moving to South America where they'll be missionaries. And so we moved to Ecuador where just a few years before, those four missionaries were killed by Indians in the jungle. And we moved to Ecuador knowing that this is a country where violence has happened against missionaries and that there could be a price to be paid. It's because of my parents' understanding of the things that are taught in this chapter that my dad was able to go on a motorcycle down the beach because there was no road to the village he was going to, and 
was stopped in the middle of the night by a band of guys who were known as the face peelers because they would kill people out on the road or on the beach, rob them, and peel the skin off their face and throw them in the water so they would never be identified. I remember my dad telling this story and about how he just, God gave him a piece of scripture for each one, and he pointed at each one of those guys and just pointed at him and quoted a piece of scripture, quoted a Bible verse, and as he quoted a Bible verse and pointed at each one of those guys, they one by one just left, and he went on his way, and the next morning preached at a, a little village that had never heard the word of God before. It's because of this that he was able to do that. And so, church, what are we going to do with this today? What is going to be our response as we think of God build, continuing to build his church in our city, in our country, where we're protected by our Constitution, and yet our freedoms are constantly being eroded and decayed? As we pray for the church in China, in Ukraine, in Iran, in other parts of the world, in northern India, where... Our, uh, our brother, who's a missionary, stood here on this platform just a few weeks ago and shared with us more about his ministry, this guy that we support, whose name I won't mention because even that day we couldn't have our live stream going for his own security. This is the focus of Vero Bible Fellowship Church. It's not worshiping in freedom. It's not keeping peace. It's no matter what, doing all that we can to fulfill the work of the Great Commission. We started out this morning with the reading of Psalm 36, because wicked people are a reality, and they do cause opposition. But we read a good portion of Psalm 36 because the other side of that is that we, the people of God, whether it's in times of peace and prosperity or violence and destruction, we, the people of God, get to drink from his river of delights. Father, thank you this morning for the truth of your word. Thank you that your greatness exceeds any opposition or difficulty that we can face. Thank you that the pressure is not on us to do everything just perfectly and make every decision just right because your work will go forward and you will build your church. God, thank you that you involve us in your story, but it's your story and it's not ours. Father, thank you that you give us the opportunity and the instruction to go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to obey the things you've commanded and that you've promised that as we do, you will be with us always, even to the end of the age. God, I pray that we would be inspired this morning with a renewed commitment to the building of the church, to the work of evangelism, to the work of the Great Commission, that our focus wouldn't be drawn off of where it should be and on to pleas for protection and freedom. And God, we do pray this morning for our fellow believers in difficult places who this morning are in danger of their lives because of their faith in you. Father, I pray that you would give them protection but Father, mostly I pray that you would give them opportunity to speak, to preach, and that your church would grow, that your work would go forward, that your name would be glorified in sickness, in death, 
and prosperity and peace. God, may we be committed, regardless of our circumstances, to the work of the Great Commission this morning. Thank you for your word and what it teaches. Thank you for those missionaries who went out and set the example of going into all the world and preaching and teaching. Father, thank you that we have missionaries that we get to support in different parts of the world who are out there teaching the gospel in difficult places. Father, may we be faithful to pray for them and the fruit of their ministry. We ask all of this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, church. God bless you. Greet one another before you leave this morning. And as you go through your week, give some thought to all of this. Remember the purpose of the church, the growth of the kingdom, and that praying for peace and freedom is not our primary goal. If you'd like to pray with one of the elders or prayer partners this morning, please come to the front. They'll be up here awaiting you. God bless you and have a good day.